This is Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Matt Pennington, who heads up RFA's Southeast Asian Services. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm good, Paul, thanks. And it's an important day in our household. It's my wife, Taxina's birthday. Well, happy birthday, Taxina. I'm sure she'll appreciate that. And hopefully she'll be um, incentivized to listen to our podcast, which sounds like it'll be a very good one this week. I'm looking forward to it. Now, when U.S. President Joe Biden made the most significant overseas trip of his presidency in the past week to Europe and England, there were no meetings with Chinese officials. But China was definitely high on the agenda. I'll be speaking to Jane Tong of RFA Mandarin Service about how Western nations' concerns about China loomed so large at the G7 and NATO summits in a way we've never seen before. But first up, Matt will be previewing an upcoming RFA exclusive about a Chinese tycoon wanted in China for running an illegal gambling ring who has landed on his feet in Cambodia and found friends in high places. Over to you, Matt. Much is written about the increasingly close ties between China and Cambodia, which has become a key beneficiary of Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. But much less is written about the nuts and bolts of how some of the more dubious high-rolling Chinese investors operate in Cambodia and capitalize on its lax regulations. On June 22nd, RFA will publish an in-depth story about one such investor who has eluded arrest by Chinese authorities for allegedly running a major illegal gambling ring in China, only to set up shop in Cambodia, where he's built a new business empire, including, you guessed it, a casino. I'm joined by the principal author of this investigation, Jack Davies, who over the past 18 months or so has done a series of stories probing the financial and property interests of Cambodia's ruling elite. Welcome, Jack. Hi, Matt. Thanks very much for having me. So I've really enjoyed reading your latest story. Could you perhaps tell me a little bit about the Chinese fugitive at the center of it? I understand he's invested in a casino and hotel in Sienoville. What's in his past? So Zhuai Min, interestingly, his past is a bit of a black hole in many respects. And I say that as someone who's spent a good portion of this first half of the year looking into it. What we do know is that he was convicted at uh, some point around 10 years ago of running a illegal online gambling ring. And this was estimated to have a turnover of $1.75 billion. Uh, so his online gambling operation was generating more revenue in a single year than some countries' economies do. And he was running this out of Sihanoukville, the same place that he's now running this casino. We know that he was in Cambodia from at least around about 2008, 2009. Uh, we know this because he gave a donation to the Chinese embassy, funnily enough, at some point around then. We know that around about 2010, the Chinese authorities in mainland China became aware that there was this online gambling ring being run. Uh, we know that sometime between 2010 and 2012, they traced it to Zhuamin's server in Sihanoukville. We also know that he was running large amounts of money through five bank accounts with HSBC in Hong Kong. We're talking tens of millions of dollars here. Um, at least that was what was in them at the moment that the Hong Kong authorities tried to freeze them. We also know that he, at least on paper, had a couple of businesses uh, back at this time in Cambodia. 
Um, one of them purported to be a travel agency. The other one, according to archived versions of its website that we've managed to track down, was sort of a kind of jack of all trades investment fund. It was supposed to be investing in agriculture. It was supposed to be investing in industry, in consulting. You'd expect some kind of fragments to be left behind that would show that this company that was claiming to have $100 million to invest, that it was doing something. And there's almost nothing uh, apart from a registered office in a tower block in, uh, in Phnom Penh. There wasn't much to kind of to show for. And so uh, a working hypothesis is that actually this company just existed with this fancy website that's full of kind of strange filler text that kind of suggests they weren't actually doing anything was actually just a way of saying to HSBC, oh, look, this money is legitimate. Of course, it's interesting to note that around the same time, HSBC itself received a close to $2 billion fine from the US authorities for uh, allowing rampant money laundering to take place through its branches. But all this to say, he was kind of a, a mystery until Chinese authorities tried to arrest him. Um, and that's kind of where he starts leaving a trail because he starts appearing in Chinese language news reports. He starts appearing in court judgments in Hong Kong, but all the time no one can find him. And, and, uh, and the authorities in Hong Kong finally realize that he's in, in Cambodia and he's refusing to come back. So what was he accused of by the Chinese authorities? I mean, regarding this gambling ring, you said it was using a server based in Cambodia but the gamblers are in China, right? Correct, correct. So uh, gambling's been illegal in China since the 1940s. Um, and so there are no casinos in mainland China. A lot of this takes place online. He was running, he was alleged by the Chinese authorities and, and convicted by the Chinese authorities uh, for running online Baccarat games. Baccarat is reportedly very popular in China. And so he was sentenced. He was convicted and sentenced by the Chinese system. He was indeed. He was convicted to 10 years in jail in, off the top of my head, either 2012 or 2013. Um, he was tried in absentia. Around about the time he was convicted or shortly thereafter, he was living in Hong Kong, where he had a Hong Kong ID card. And we know that uh, after the Chinese authorities, they put out what's known as a Interpol Red Notice. This is something that's commonly described as a, as a international arrest warrant. One month before that Interpol notice reaches the authorities in Hong Kong, he very uh, serendipitously departs for what we believe to be Cambodia. In the end, he ended up in Cambodia, but all we know is that he, he left Hong Kong. Um, so he's technically a fugitive still. I mean, he should, according to the Chinese courts, he should be in jail for at least another year or two. Um, but he's spent none of those years in jail and he's been making a fortune for himself out in Cambodia instead. So what steps have the Chinese authorities taken to try and arrest him as far as we, as we know? Do we know whether they've actually sought his extradition from Cambodia? What we know, and this comes from uh, from Chinese news reports that uh, that appear to be sourced almost directly from the Ministry of Public Security, or at least from the local Chinese police, is that the Ministry of Public Security in China flew out on multiple occasions. They sent pretty high-ranking officials from the ministry out to Cambodia. We know from these reports that they met with Sarkeng, who's the, the interior minister of Cambodia and a deputy prime minister there. 
And despite the fact they managed to bring back some of the Chinese suspects, Zhu Amin remained in Cambodia. You write about how Zhu has used his political connections in Cambodia to stay a free man and also to build up his business in Cambodia. So who has been helping him inside Cambodia? I believe we need to be slightly careful in how we talk about who has been helping him because you know the nature of this kind of thing is that a lot of it is behind the scenes what we can talk about is what we know which is which political figures and public officials have been lending their presence to activities by Juamin and his colleagues and so the the focal point of this story is the fact that uh, Juamin, this wanted illegal gambling mastermind, has turned up back in Cambodia and he's running a casino with a man named Briti Sam Nang, who is the son-in-law of a ruling party senator in Cambodia called Kokan. Kokan made his fortunes in the 1990s, uh, running cigarettes and also running uh, gambling. It runs in the family, apparently. And so he's turned up at multiple events and he's also in business with certain elements of Zhuamin and Riti Samnang's uh, joint ventures. Uh, so we know that he has lent his face to this. We know that Sao Sokar, who's the head of the Cambodian military police, has turned up at a donation that Zhuamin and Riti Samnang made to a children's hospital of $200,000. Uh, we know that he then had the spokesperson for the ministry post photos of that event on the Facebook page for the military police. It would be unusual in most countries for the head of the military police to post publicity photos on their official Facebook page with a wanted fugitive for crimes with a value totaling billions of dollars. Additionally, the deputy governor of Sihanoukville has given speeches at the opening events for various business functions uh, that Zhuamin's involved in as a director and a shareholder. When Chinese police spoke to the Chinese press about this case, they said that there were two reasons that Zhuamin was not being extradited from Cambodia. One was his Cambodian citizenship, and one was, uh, in their words, his connections with high-level political officials. There's an interesting line in the story where you talk about how Cambodia is often viewed as a client state of China, but when it comes to Chinese doing business in Cambodia, that relationship is flipped on its head. What did you mean by that? What I meant is that there's been a lot of research done over the years that shows that it's near impossible to get anything done investment-wise, big investments in Cambodia, uh, without some kind of political support. And so what lots of researchers have found and what Zhuamin's relationship with Riti Samnang seems to form a part of the pattern of is that a Chinese investor will come to Cambodia and they will attach themselves to an opnia, the position of a tycoon within the country, um, somewhere between a lordship and an oligarchship. And uh, they'll, they'll attach themselves to an opnia and they'll pay an upfront free fee to the Ocnia usually. 
And in return, the Ocnia will help spirit the Chinese investors' uh, business through kind of the licensing process or the application process for permits or, you know, for land or generally clearing the way for them. And we'll also use their connections with high-ranking officials to protect the business. And then usually they'll be cut in as a shareholder um, or somehow ever... Uh, some other way they'll be cut in to ensure that they get a share of the profits afterwards. And so when a Chinese investor comes to Cambodia, they are looking for a patron. And so they themselves become the client. Okay. So in this case, the Ognia, the, the person who's kind of like the patron of the project is Riti Samnang. Correct. Now, what kind of impact do you think this sort of back scratching between Chinese investors and well-connected Cambodians has on the investment environment in Cambodia? It's an interesting question. I think maybe what's more true is that the nature of the investment environment in Cambodia, you know, the capricious enforcement of the rule of law leads to a situation in which investors need to find someone to attach to to safeguard their investment. And I think it's important as well to put this in a in a more global context, this is it's not a very unusual set of relationships. You know, throughout the world, there are various degrees of kind of patron-client relationship. You know, we can look to the way large corporations make multi-million dollar donations to people running for Congress in the United States, or well, they wouldn't be making those investments if they didn't believe there was some kind of payoff in, in doing that. And, you know, you look in China, you know, there, there was some excellent reporting from the New York Times about a decade ago, looking at the way that companies would just insert a young relative of a senior Chinese official into the shareholders of their company as a way of kind of circumventing kind of bribery laws and stuff. And I, I think a lot of this kind of back scratching in Cambodia is actually a fairly institutionalized process. The, the OCNIA acts kind of as a middleman, you know, instead of the Chinese investor having to figure out who's the right person to bribe, who to make friends with, the OCNIA instead has that network already and facilitates, you know, it might not even be that they necessarily bribe everyone that they need a favor from. They might have generated favors in other ways, but, you know, if they do need to bribe someone, they they will know the correct person to do it. They'll know the way to do it. They'll know the amount to do it. We, we see this all over the world in various guises. Reading a, a great book about the, the role of middlemen in the oil industry around the world, um, and it, it's very much the same kind of thing that you know, these relationships are the product of a weak enforcement environment. I think so long as proper rule of law fails to materialize, there will always be these kind of things, um, just because it's sadly the only way these things get done. Well, Jack, thank you very much for talking us through your insight into that situation in Cambodia. We'll be publishing that story on the RFA website, rfa.org on June the 22nd. So thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you, Jack and Matt, for giving us that fascinating look at the murky world of Cambodian gambling. Now, China was not at the table for Joe Biden's meetings with G7 industrial democracies in Britain and NATO leaders in Brussels this past week, but it was definitely on the menu as G7 officials highlighted threats to Taiwan, repression in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, 
and NATO described China as a systemic challenge. RFA Mandarin's diplomatic reporter Jane Tong will put this and China's response into perspective for Eyes on Asia. Jane Tong from the Mandarin Service, thanks again for joining us after a busy week. Thanks for having me, Paul. So I know you've been following it closely, albeit from Washington rather than in England and in Geneva, but uh, what was the biggest takeaway from the meetings where China, which did not attend any of these sessions, was always in the room? Yeah, Paul, uh, you know, one of the biggest takeaway or the outcomes of President Biden's trip is definitely convergence among, they call it like-minded countries among the world's democracies on China. We've seen in, in G7 statement, they mentioned Taiwan the first time calling for China to support peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Then after NATO summit, the statement also for the first time um, adopted tough line on China, calling China a uh, systemic challenges. Um, the language in NATO's, NATO's statement is even tougher. I, I believe uh, the full quote is, China is China's stated ambitions and assertive behavior presents systemic challenges to the rule-based international order and to area relevant to alliance security. Um, and other than language, we've also seen G7 embrace a new infrastructure initiative, Build Back Better World, which is an alternative to China's Belt Road Initiative. So we've seen Biden's administration trying to unite EU against China since they get into the office on this trip. They deliver quite some fruitful results. Was China flattered by all the attention or did China get, <laughs> did China sort of get up Angered, angered by the so-called so interference in their internal affairs. How did China respond? Well, Beijing was definitely watching Biden's trip closely, as you can imagine, and they are not happy with the language came out from these meetings. On G7 summit, Chinese officials said, um, well, small groups do not rule the world. And on NATO's, China responded with anger and scorn, accusing the alliance of recycling outdated Cold War strategies. I believe a spokesman for uh, China's foreign ministry warned that forming the cliques and forcing countries to side were a uh, strategy doomed to fail. Um, um, to be fair, these are talking points we've always heard from Chinese officials these days when they're facing international pressure. However, China also responded with more than just language this time. On, on the day after G7 summit, um, Chinese military sent 28 Chinese fighter jets and other aircraft over waters south of Taiwan. This is this was the largest fleet in years. And the day after NATO summit, Hong Kong police raid a newspaper, April Daily headquarters, and arrest five newspaper executives under national security law. The day after Biden-Putin summit, China launched first astronaut to its new space station. Overall, I, I think we can argue these are some sort of indirect response to uh, you know the global pressure China is facing, and or to draw away attention from the pressure, especially to you know Chinese domestic audiences. That's very interesting, and China likes its symbolism, and it likes to as much as possible manage the news flow, at least for its own people. Would you say that? I mean, your answer fed right into what I was going to ask next, which is that going forward. You know, the, these are a, a lot of strong suspicions about 
China being voiced, and they won't go away. So China, <laughs> as it moves forward, what does it do? Does it double down on this strategy or does it try to modify things? And we've seen reports in the press that Xi Jinping, in a recent speech, wanted to diplomats to put a nicer face on Chinese behavior around the world, <laughs> right. that kind of thing. So there's speculation that even wolf warriors will be silenced going forward. But what does China do? What are the experts thinking China will do next? You just gave a list of things China did in the week mm -hmm. since the summit, and they were not generally positive things. They were kind of a challenge or a response. So mm -hmm. going forward, how does China uh, deal with this new situation? This is a tough question because, um, you know, in, in, but in, in Chinese politics, domestic policy controlling the public opinion and to ensure the internal social stability, they call it is way important than foreign policy. So I'm skeptical to see any change or of behavior or adjustment to come in the short term, especially now, you know, the, the celebration of 100 year, uh, 100th anniversary of Chinese Communist Party is coming up on July 1st. So in the short run, I think we might see more tighter control in China. However, like you say, we, we might be able to see some minor changes in the long term. It could be change of tone on Chinese diplomat, perhaps, you know, shifting away from wolf warrior diplomacy a little bit. You know, um, like you say, Xi Jinping uh, just a week ago called for more lovable, credible, respectable image for China in bit of to make friends. Other areas I'd keep an eye on is South China Sea, which NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg had pointed out specifically on the press conference that South China Sea is where they see China's coercive behavior. So it would be interesting to see how China respond to that and, like you say, or to alter its behavior in some way in the future. Yeah, indeed. And it could be argued that, at least in the case of Europe, China's wolf warrior diplomacy and other Chinese actions helped the Biden administration recruit European countries to take a tougher stance. Uh, the sanctions that China put against specific officials and think tank people, they, they basically changed European minds overnight in some cases, I'm told. That is true. I, when I was talking to some um, observer in Europe, they, they all talk about how um, the wolf warrior and the language from Chinese diplomat is like not working the way they want it. And instead, it make them very upset, uh, European very upset of their behavior. As if the week was not busy enough, Biden went on in midweek into Geneva, where he met Russian President Vladimir Putin. You know, the, the day before Putin and Biden summit, um, Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said, China and Russia are united like a mountain, and their friendship is unbreakable. He even used a Chinese pervert saying, um, true gold doesn't fear the test of fire to describe China-Russia relation. The truth is Beijing and, and Moscow found themselves in a similar place these few years. They are both being sanctioned, isolated from the world, their economy is struggling, especially Russia. And Russia has turned to China for help, especially on trade. And on, on diplomatic front, we've seen China and Russia often walk, work together on, you know, multilateral institution like UN. And then now you have President Biden identify China as the biggest challenge to the U.S. Then he had the first face-to-face -face meeting with Putin. 
in the end of his trip to Europe. The two leaders came out smiling, calling the meeting constructive, um, positive, no hostility. They also issued a joint statement, agreed to launch new dialogue on arms control. I would be surprised if, if the policymakers in Zhongnanhai and Beijing doesn't see it as a warning sign signal and, and prompt them to rethink their grand strategy on the international stage. That's quite interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> uh, but it's always a, a real pleasure to get your views on the news behind the news. And again, mm -hmm. I want to thank you and wish you a good weekend, Jane. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Have a good weekend, too. Thanks, Jane and Paul, for talking us through the geopolitics of President Biden's trip to Europe and the UK. You know, it's not unheard of for Western powers to give collective voice to their concerns about China, but I can't recall a time when it's been so full-throated. You know, I was interested to hear Jane's observation that in the days after that stinging criticism, China staged a major show of air power near Taiwan and then arrested five top people at Apple Daily, Hong Kong's main independent newspaper. So, Paul, do you think that's a coincidence or not? Hard to know exactly, but China likes to maximize uh, the surprise or shock value of things it was going to do anyway, and it does like symbolism. So I imagine it might have looked at those as relatively cost-free ways to respond while it does some deeper thinking about its situation. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcast, and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia with Matt Pennington. This series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.